for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor Program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of Your Financial Editor Program. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us. Hope you're having a good Saturday, a good weekend. We have a good program planned for you uh, today. We're going to be uh, talking about some deals and some top stories and some economic data from this week, uh, what the Fed and Treasury Secretary were up to and how that might impact folks uh, that might still be feeling a little bit of uh, pain from uh, from the virus. And um, also, we're going to be talking with an economist about uh, climate change and um, some of the things that are being proposed and how that might impact uh, various economies and financial markets and individuals and their families, not just here, but uh, around the uh, around the globe. So uh, that's coming up in just a little bit. I think you'll find that to be interesting. A couple big deals announced this week. Um, Microsoft says said that uh, they're going to be um, acquiring uh, a company called Xenomax Media for $7.5 billion. It's their biggest gaming acquisition uh, to date. And, um, you know, they were trying to to buy the video sharing app TikTok. Instead, Oracle and Walmart uh, seem to be um, in the driver's seat there based on uh, what we've heard. Now, that's pending because of what is going to come down from uh, the administration. But, um, yeah, I mean, just goes to show how popular these games are nowadays. I mean, seven and a half billion dollars. And um, all of this, as Microsoft gears up to release their next generation of Xbox consoles, and um, they're doing that uh, just about the same time that uh, Sony is going to be rolling out the the new PlayStation 5 system. So a lot of competition there, a lot of money, obviously, there as well uh, to be made. So um, the... You know, all of the lockdowns and the shelter in place and, you know, you're not allowed to go anywhere. That really helped uh, gaming because a lot of people uh, were spending more time, spending more money. You had a lot of new people getting involved in the, in that area. And uh, Microsoft and many other companies have been uh, the beneficiaries of that. And they've seen kind of the writing on the wall. Um well, it's something that I think is a little more serious when you look at uh, another deal that was done, Illumina, which is a leading maker of the machines that sequence genes, um, said on Monday that it's going to pay $7.1 billion. This is a cash and stock deal for a developer of a long-sought uh, blood test that promises to detect cancer early. So um, I just thought that was a, a great um, announcement. Um, the deal for part of Grail Inc. that Illumina doesn't already own will move the company, uh, Illumina, deeper into the application of its gene sequencing technology to the diagnosis and treatment of patients. And you're talking about potentially multi-billion dollars in that market uh, aluminum founded Grail four years ago, and they own a large stake in the company, and um, obviously they want to uh, own it all. And the purchase will be Illumina's biggest acquisition. Um, it's going to propel it further into the clinical applications of their gene sequencers and related products and services that they have. So the CEO of Illumina said that uh, uh, he only believes that um, or that they do believe that early detection of cancer could be one of the largest applications of genomics over the next 15 years. And um, I'm sure he's right. And, you know, it's good for them, obviously, as a business and for all of their employees. But what wonderful news for uh, potential patients out there to be able to learn ahead of time that something may be going on and and really um, get out in front of it with whether it's treat treatment or lifestyle changes or whatever it may be. So I thought that was really uh, really good to hear um, and, and and positive. So we're hearing all these uh, about all of this um, gridlock down inside the Beltway and between the house 
and the Senate and the House and the White House. And, you know, we need uh, some more economic relief. And originally, the House Democrats, um, they said that they needed uh, well over $3 trillion of new uh, stimulus money. And then, of course, uh, the Senate said, no, we don't need that. We'd be fine with, uh, I think it was $1.3 trillion. So the House said that's not right, and they, you know, kind of got mad and went away. And um, people were still haggling back and forth. The latest from the House was the $2.4 trillion. But what I thought was great, and it came out this week, was that Chairman Powell and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, um, they were testifying before um, – the House and, and the uh, Senate this week. But it was nice for them to say that um, there's a lot of money that hasn't been used yet. So in other words, of the relief packages that have already come out, including the the um, the CARES pack, package, I think it was called, uh, there's a lot of leftover money that hasn't been claimed that the Federal Reserve made available that the Treasury Department made available. I'm talking hundreds of billions of dollars. So what uh, Secretary Mnuchin said was, let's use that money. Let's repurpose that money since no one seems to need it for what we made it available for. And let's give some targeted relief to um, individuals who are still unemployed, to businesses who are still... Uh, being forced to run their business a certain way because of government overreach and they can't make money to pay their bills. Um, you know, again, targeted and instead of these big pork projects that, uh, I mean, there's no way you go from over $3 trillion down to just over $1 trillion. And, you know, knowing that people can be taken care of with that lower amount, just think of the where the rest of all of that money goes. And it's, of course, you're paying for it. It's taxpayer money. So um, I thought it was great that, uh, again, Secretary Mnuchin said that um, that they could do that, and he was ready at any given time to uh, negotiate for um, bipartisan relief. So hopefully that's going to happen. It's funny, right after he started saying that and pushing it in public before the Senate, is when um, Pelosi came out with uh, the the new number, the 2.4 number. So um, I, I hope uh, Mnuchin and Powell and anybody else involved is able to uh, to get that done, and we don't see all of this other government waste and um, and corruption for sure. You know, it was a tough week for banks, especially at the beginning of the week. Um, HSBC and Standard Chartered. Their shares really got knocked around after media reports came out that they and other big banks moved large sums of um, allegedly illicit funds for about a 20, 20 well, about 20 year period, roughly, um, despite red flags about where this money was coming from. So this isn't something that we didn't know about, but there were media reports um, that were based on leaked suspicious activity reports that were filed by banks and other financial firms with the U.S. Department of uh, Treasury's, um, it's called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. And, um, I mean, you're talking about over 2,100 of those reports, and HSBC and Standard Chartered were among the five banks that appeared most often in these documents. So they really got knocked around. Um, as did some other banks. And, you know, like I said, this isn't totally new, but I was glad that there was a uh, a new light uh, that was shined on this issue because it's so important to make sure that these drug dealers and sex traffickers and um, terrorist organizations and any other bad thing you can think of uh, where they have to basically launder their money, um, I think it's great that that people are paying attention to these these um, just despicable criminals and uh, filth of the earth. So the more people 
that they're, they're able to catch and trace that money trail and to punish uh, the better off. So even though it's rough on the banks, and, you know, they can't, there's not like a 100% um, way or approval that they aren't going to get duped themselves. You have to rely on their compliance departments. You have to rely on people that when they see something that doesn't look right, they say something and alert the authorities so that they can do their job, which they do extremely well, by the way, um, in finding that money. The forensics accounting is just unbelievable. So the more people that uh, the good guys can get, the better off a lot of folks around the world are going to be. Something else was interesting this week. So, um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of earnings out this week, but FedEx came out and um, they had a uh, a conference call. They, you know, they did the virtual shareholder meeting thing uh, and, and with analysts. And um, it was pretty interesting because the executives at FedEx faced criticism for their role in pressuring the Washington Redskins to change their name to the Washington football team. <laughs> so during the virtual event, the CEO and chairman, the founder, Fred Smith of FedEx, was reading uh, questions from shareholders who argued the company had alienated wide swaths of customers who are sick to death of loud performative wokeness when it publicly called for the franchise to discontinue the use of its Redskins name and logo. So they, the shareholders are saying, just stop, refocus on your core business and don't worry about all this other baloney. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Personal story. Um, I have a buddy whose father, full-blooded Cherokee, and he was so proud of the name and the logo, the Warrior logo that the Redskins had. I mean, that was his team. And he always had his Redskins jacket on or whatever, you know, other um, apparel. So um, is a good man and was, you know, this would, he's passed away. But I'm telling you, this would devastate him if he was uh, still on, on, on earth. Because um, he was just so, so proud, as I said. So um, interesting there, though, that shareholders are really piping in on this kind of stuff, saying we're sick of it. Uh, quick break. Uh, our latest complimentary uh, download for you is titled, Are You Paying Too Much in Taxes in Retirement? So you just go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's on the homepage right there. You click it. It's an instant download for you, um, and you can look at it. It's an eight-page uh guide, if you will, talking about separating your taxable and your tax-deferred accounts and um, options for tax deductions in retirement income, et cetera. So uh, take advantage of that and uh, enjoy it. I think, uh, you know, you'll find it uh, to be beneficial. And uh, we'll be back in uh, just a minute, so stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and go to iTunes and uh, the Your Financial Editor program is available as a podcast for you as well. And um, you can re-listen to it or uh, you can, you know, uh, share it if you like. You think somebody's going to um, appreciate or benefit from the uh, program if, if you think it'll be helpful for them. Uh, that's what the program is for. So uh, I, I hope you take advantage of that. We look at economic data this week. Just continue to see how sw uh, how strong the uh, housing markets are. 
and you know that that sector in general. U.S. Uh, home sales surged to their highest level, existing home sales to their highest level in nearly 14 years in August. So um, you see the sector continue to, to outperform the rest of uh, the economy in many aspects. The report came from the National Association of Realtors, and uh, it was just more confirmation that the housing market had recovered after the slump immediately fi- uh, following the virus and, again, the shutdown of, uh, of our economy and really just our way of life. Um, and and it's, the, it's a really good thing because – you see these existing home sales up 2.4%. Uh, it's an annual rate of $6 million last month when you look at it. It's the highest level we've seen since December 2006. And it's the third straight month of gains. So um, the median uh, existing home price uh, itself jumped 11.4% from a year ago. And um, even more data came out, you know, from the... Um, Federal Housing Finance Agency, who was talking about those house prices and overall how they're rising and, um, you know, on a year over year basis, that was actually for July. So that was a little bit more of a a, a lagging piece of information, but just really good stuff. New home sales are up. I mean, that market's doing well. And it's um, it's not just a seller's market. You know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, they're Folks are putting their house on the market, and they're getting pretty much what they want for it. Sometimes there's a bidding war, and they get more. Um, there's not a lot of inventory. I mean, we know that it's you know we're light on inventory, but it's also a buyer's market. And I say that because you're talking about uh, historically low interest rates. The the Mortgage Bankers Association, for example, you know they put out their information every Wednesday morning, and when I was looking at it this past Wednesday. Um, it showed that mortgage applications were up 6.8% from the previous week. But when you look at the refinance index, it was up 9% and it was 86% higher than the same week a year ago. So a lot of people were taking advantage um, of these low interest rates. And even though some of the housing costs are more, people were finding that Interest rates being so low, they're able to get themselves in something that normally maybe they couldn't. So, yeah, it's definitely a seller's market, but the buyer's doing pretty well out there, too. I mean, um, the like I said, on Wednesday morning when I looked, for the previous week, the average contract interest rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was 3.23%, and the 15-year rate was 2.64%. I mean, that's like dirt cheap money. Um, so it's it's really good to see that. It's necessary because of everything that's going on. You know, we need a little extra uh, push wherever we can get it. Something else that came out Wednesday that I was glad to see, U.S. crude oil and fuel stockpiles actually fell, according to the Energy Information Administration. There was a drawdown. So when you look at crude inventories, they fell by 1.6 million barrels. Um, and then when you looked at what they call distillate stockpiles, which includes diesel and heating oil, um, those uh, stockpiles fell by 3.4 million barrels, way past the 1 million barrel rise that economists uh, were looking for. And gasoline stocks, they fell by 4 million barrels last week compared with uh, a drop of just 648,000. Tells me two things. One, um, the economists and analysts really were way off. But two, you've got a lot of demand out there because of the the uh, the demand for these energy sources. That means things are going on in the economy. People are driving more. Um, you look at the fuel, for example, um, the diesel fuel being used even more, um, especially by the over-the-road truckers who are moving uh, product and freight all across the country. So I thought that was very, very good to see. Um, and um, yeah, prices might go up a little bit depending on that drawdown. But I look at that drawdown definitely as half full because, again, it means that there's activity and that bodes well for the economy. One of the other things we got this week was a regional survey from the uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, which actually we fall in their district. It's the fifth district. 
And, you know, we had already seen the, the New York Empire State, the Philly Fed, seen some of these others. But for the 5th District, manufacturing activity in September um, improved. So the composite index went from a reading of 18 in August to 21 in September. Um, it was really helped by the increases in indicators for new orders and for employment and even shipments remain positive. So that suggests that we're going to have a continued expansion. Um, and what was really interesting is that there were a lot of companies out there that were struggling to find workers with the necessary skills they need to fill the jobs that were available. So you, we talk about all these people that are unemployed, but there's actually a lot of jobs out there that aren't being filled. And you have to scratch your head at that um, because the extra money, for the most part, you know, the big extra 600 bucks, uh, that's run out. So I don't know why people would just want to sit home on the, you know, on the couch. But anyway, that's what the report said. Uh, there was other pieces like from um, the data firm IHS Market came out on Wednesday and they were talking about the steady uh, recovery in this month of September for both the uh, U.S. sector service and manufacturing. So I loved seeing that. That was really good. And, and I'm pointing this out because really there's a lot of talk on cable television and in um, really just the kind of the mainstream media about how things are, are not working out right. When I look at the data, it looks pretty good. I don't, I don't really know how they're making that argument. I mean, I know there's still a lot of pain out there. But it's unbelievable when you look at the progress that's been made so far. Um, and as far as the Federal Reserve, a couple things going on there. One really surprised me. The Federal Reserve, uh, at the beginning of the week, started taking um, some initial steps to rewrite rules of hundreds of billions of dollars in lending in lower-income neighborhoods. So this is something that um, is from the uh, Community Reinvestment Act from back in 1977, and anybody that remembers the housing crisis, that was part of the problem. Wasn't all the problem, of course, but it was part of it. So um, I I wish they would have just kind of crumbled that up and thrown it in the wastebasket, but they didn't. So, you know, we'll continue to, uh, to look at it. And the other thing we saw from the Fed was um, just how much of resurgence we've seen in the stock market and what a positive thing that has been so far. So... Uh, that's really good to see as well. Uh, we'll get you some news here. Again, the complimentary um, download for you at murrayfinancialgroup.com. Are you paying too much in taxes in retirement? Get that. Take advantage of it. And um, I hope it's helpful to you. And on the other side of this, we'll be talking with an economist about climate change and its impacts. is 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. With a $59 flat service. I'm Dan Sutton. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Streaming live worldwide at WFMD.com. And um, uh, good to have you along this morning uh, and this afternoon. Both of our programs that we have, appreciate it as always. And uh, I was mentioning right before our break that we were going to be jumping in uh, to our conversation with my guest this morning. Uh, very glad to have joining me Mr. Uh, Nick Loris. He's an economist. He focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues as the deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies um, and Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen him uh, on TV or read about some of his work uh, in the various publications or heard him on other radio programs. But glad to have him uh, with us this morning. Good morning, Nick. 
Good morning. Hey, Good yeah, to be here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for taking some time to join us. Um, and obviously, what kind of um, uh, came from uh, this interview and in its origin was um, I saw some of your writings this week uh, for the Daily Signal. One um, titled "Countering the Left's Climate Power Grab with Facts." And the other, the facts about climate change and California fires. So um, I, I guess we'll start with um, just the overall uh, with the article countering the left's climate power grab with facts. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Green New Deal and uh, various other things. Um, I guess just kind of give our listeners a, a sense of um, our current energy policy versus what's being proposed. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, a proposal in the Green New Deal that would radically transform our energy economy. Uh, you know, right now we uh, get about 80% of our energy needs from conventional resources in uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. And uh, the, the purpose of the Green New Deal is essentially to take that down to zero. And the, the reason we, we have uh, coal, oil, and natural gas supplying so much of our reliable, affordable energy is because uh, they are just that. They are uh, affordable and reliable. And uh, it, that's not to uh, denigrate other sources of energy. You know, if uh, renewable sources of energy can compete in the in the marketplace, then that's great. We, we certainly welcome more competition, and I think they can. And I think there's opportunities to do that. But what the, the Green New Deal attempts to do is accomplish a 100 percent transformation with a slew of uh, taxpayer-funded subsidies, regulations, and mandates to get us there. And that's only going to make us worse off, uh, both economically and environmentally. So um, how close are we, you think, to uh, seeing major changes in energy? I mean, we've seen them the last couple few years with the current administration, um, if I guess we'll look at it two different ways, if we continue with that administration, what it looks like, and if we diverge and go a different way, what it might look like. Yeah, there's been a, a lot of progress made over the past few years, and even dating back to some of the actions that the Obama administration took. You know, one of the most productive things that uh, President Obama did when it comes to energy was lift the ban on crude oil exports, which allowed for uh, more oil to flow to the market, which helps lower oil prices and consequently uh, gas prices in the United States. Uh, but, you know, this administration ha has really taken an axe to uh, overburdensome, stringent regulations that were devoid of any meaningful environmental benefit. And so if you look at some of the actions that were, were taken by the Department of Interior to open access uh, to uh, federal lands, to energy production, uh, or the Council on Environmental Quality's uh, recent rewrite of the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, better known as NEPA, which has long held um, many energy and infrastructure and public works projects up in, in years of uh, environmental review and, and permitting processes, as well as litigation. You know, these are actions that are helping to right-size the regulatory state. Uh, obviously, everybody, uh, both on the left and the right, wants uh, clean air uh, and drinkable water. Uh, we all want those things, but uh, a lot of these regulations that have been promulgated in recent years are only serving to increase costs on businesses, which means that those costs are going to be passed down onto consumers uh, for negligible environmental benefit. And, and so what we've seen in recent years is really a, a right-sizing of that regulatory apparatus. And like I said, there's, there's such a long way to go to ensure that we both have economic growth uh, and environmental protection. We certainly want both of those things, and they are, they're not mutually exclusive, but they, they have long been treated as mutually exclusive, that you need to trade one off for the other. Uh, and it's really about... Um, how these regulations are promulgated, um, which body of, of government is doing that from, you know, a state or local government where it might make most sense versus some of these uh, over overburdensome regulations at the federal level uh, that, that really haven't provided much of that environmental benefit to those communities. 
Yeah, and actually uh, we see it to be uh, problematic because what people usually uh, fail to realize is that um, a lot of the uh, new alternative, quote-unquote, energies and those energy sources um, are more expensive than uh, some of the natural resources that we have. And they, again, they don't, uh, I guess, process that some of the people that are hurt literally the worst by those uh, forced regulations and, um, and types of energy are the people that are poor uh, and also on fixed incomes because their energy prices go up. That's exactly right. If you look at uh, who pays a, a higher percentage of their budget on uh, energy costs, it's uh, low-income and fixed-income Americans. Uh, you know, for the median family, you know, about five cents of every dollar is allocated uh, to energy costs. Whereas for low-income families, that's closer to twenty cents out of every dollar. So these policies that artificially drive up the cost of electricity uh, are hurting uh, low-income Americans the most, and it harms all Americans multiple times over because you're not just paying more. Uh, at the pump and you're not just paying more when your electricity bill comes in the mail, but energy is such a critical component for everything we make and everything we do uh, that uh, all of the other goods and services you pay for are going to cost more too as businesses pass those costs on to consumers. And so uh, the the costs are are very significant. And a lot of these policies also can have unintended environmental consequences as well. If, If we are to ban the production of uh, oil and gas exploration in the United States, for instance, uh, that's not going to stop the consumption of these resources either in the United States or around the world. It's, it's merely going to shift that production overseas. And so all we are really doing is exporting our uh, emissions. Uh, in a lot of senses, we could be exporting those emissions uh, to other countries that don't have as rigorous health and public safety and environmental standards as those in the United States. And therefore, you're making things worse off environmentally, too. So uh, both from an economic standpoint and an environmental standpoint, uh, a lot of these policies are just they may be well-intentioned, but they are very misguided uh, when it comes to outcome-based uh, solutions. Yeah, they, I agree. They try to make everything sound like it's uh, nirvana. But really, when you when you look into it, and start, you know, flipping the stones over. It's it's just the opposite of that. Speaking with my guest this morning, Mr. Nick Lorist, uh, he received his master's degree in economics from George Mason University. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics, finance, and political science from Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania. And uh, Nick grew up in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, um, and that's a beautiful area. And I think, Nick, you know, like most of us that really love the rural areas and the countrysides, uh, we're the ones most concerned and most aware of, um, you know, the quality for the environment through recycling, whether it's the farmers with the compost and the, uh, the, the manure application as opposed to commercial fertilizers whenever possible. I mean, you know, people have been out in those areas, have been doing this their whole, well, for generations. And um, I, I just don't understand where you get these folks inside the Beltway or inside, you know, some big uh, nasty city. They think that they understand what's best as far as the environment goes. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it, it's those people who live in those communities who uh, really understand the context of the opportunities uh, of natural resource development, but also understand that the challenges and the opportunities for conservation and environmental protection as well. And, and these people are the ones who should be making those decisions rather than distant bureaucracies in Washington, D.C. And we've seen that time and time again when you, you we have local communities involved in these decisions. You can come to uh, harmonious decisions that involve all stakeholders to reach uh, good, good outcomes uh, for both economic development and environmental protection. And, and it's those people who have the most to gain uh, from utilizing their natural resources uh, in a way that uh, yields economic outcomes, uh, and they're also the most to lose if they 
do it poorly. Um, you know, there's a lot of environmental liabilities there. And so they have a strong incentive, uh, both economically and environmentally, to uh, extract natural resources very well. That's why you see places out west uh, who are, are very uh, concerned with kind of the, the Washington-centric approach to energy production on federal lands is because they don't get to make those decisions and they're stripped away from them where energy production out west on state and private owned lands has uh, skyrocketed. And, you know, this not only helps uh, the energy developers and increases supplies that help lower costs, but because it happens on state and federal lands, a lot of royalty revenues go back into the into the state, which means they go back into the the school system and the police system and to, to hospitals, you know, all of those things. So uh, there, there's plenty of examples in the in the United States, whether it's through the Endangered Species Act or offshore drilling in the case of Louisiana, uh, where economic and economic and environmental interests, when they are harmonious, you see a lot of cooperation. And it's when the federal government uh, dismisses the concerns. Um, or dismisses the, the potential opportunities for energy development that you see more competition and, and competing. And, and that's really the problem with a lot of the, pro the, a lot of the decisions that are made uh, in Washington is they continue to discount uh, the, the needs of the people who live in the community. And I think you know, this administration, you know, looking at you know, someone like Andrew Wheeler or looking at someone like Brett Bernhardt at the Department of Interior, um, or David Bernhardt, excuse me, at the Department of Interior, you know, they are people who, you know, went into these communities and really sat down with them and said, you know, what, what can we do to help you rather than here's what we're going to tell you to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, not getting the get in the way, but get out of the way and be supportive. And, and that's exactly, I think, what we need more of. Uh, quick uh, break here. When we come back, we'll continue uh, our conversation with uh, Nick Loris. He's an economist. We're going to be talking more about energy, energy policy. Also, definitely want to touch on what's going on um, out west with uh, just those horrific fires um, and uh, maybe talk about what some some solutions are that are being floated around these days. This morning I got up at 6.01 I walked out and saw the rising sun And I drank it in Like whiskey I saw a tree I've seen a thousand times A bird on a branch And I watched it fly away in the wind This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And again, you can get the Your Financial Editor program uh, off of iTunes as a podcast. So help yourself uh, with that. And uh, continuing our conversation this morning with my guest, Mr. Uh, Nick Loris. He's an economist, focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues. Um, he received his uh, undergrad uh, in economics, finance, and political science from Albright College and his master's degree in economics from George Mason University. And he grew up in Quakertown, uh, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I guess, Nick, will you know, jump into what's going on out west with the fires before we run out of time, because uh, you're seeing dozens and dozens of lives lost, uh, billions of dollars in property damage, you know, a lot of that sentimental that really can't be replaced with the dollar amount. Um, What's the, I mean, what's the real problem with that? Why do we seem to have this every year out in California and surrounding states? Yeah, the main priority and the main problem really has been the, the buildup of the fuel load uh, and that, that, that tinderbox of dry trees and grass and shrubs that has accumulated over time 
and ecologists uh, have long recommended and urged that California take a, a, a more proactive approach to have prescribed or controlled burns um, and to thin the forest a little bit more to reduce the amounts of uh, tinder that is in these forests because that without that type of action, uh, you have these just super severe fires uh, and with uh, the right wind patterns, they can do the, the exact damage that they've done this year. And, it, and you're exactly right. It is very, very tragic. And, and there's a number of reasons why these prescribed burns uh, haven't happened uh, nearly to the extent that they should be. Um, part of it is just the, the regulatory apparatus that it takes to get the permits approved for these prescribed burns, which can take up to a year and a half. Uh, and then a little bit of it is... Um, you know, luck as well. You know, you need to do them on certain days. You need to make sure that the, the wind is okay on the day that you want to do it because you don't want a prescribed burn to get out of control. Uh, and you also need to make sure the, the air quality is okay that day as well because there are a number of federal, uh, state, and local air quality regulations that need to be met as well. And so if there's, you know, some sort of farming activity or something else going on that day and the air quality is not good, you may not be able to do the prescribed burn on that specific day. And, and the um, sad and, you know, ironic uh, part of that conversation is that obviously the air quality is much, much worse and the pollution is much, much worse from these fires than whether or not it would have been marginally worse on the days that they have done the prescribed burns. And so... This is something that, uh, again, I, I think if you look at ecologists and probably, you know, many are, are on the left-leaning side, some are on the right-leaning side, some are just, you know, apolitical, have just said that, you know, this is something that the West and California just really needs to do more of. Um, I, there was one statistic uh, in a peer-reviewed article uh, that, that said um, over the past two decades or so, um, California implemented controlled burns for an average of 13,000 acres per year. And uh, the article in Nature Sustainability suggested that California needs about 20 million acres burned uh, to really prevent and mitigate the, the severity and the intensity of these wildfires. So it just needs to happen at, at such a larger level. So, I mean, unfortunately, we see uh, how California and many other states and, and urban areas are addressing a lot of problems, uh, bass backwards, basically. So if that's not going to improve, then we're going to continue. We might as well just admit it. We're going to continue to have more uh, death and destruction because people are worried about um, a controlled bird, uh, burn or, you know, saving a bird or some other type of animal. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you have that in uh, conjunction with California housing policies where a lot of uh, and, and federal housing policies in, in that regard that have uh, pushed more housing expansion out into what are known as these wildland urban interfaces, which is you know away from the cities, but into these more wildfire prone areas. So you have a combination of inaction on uh, you know timber harvesting and prescribed or controlled burns uh, as well as pushing people out into these more wildfire prone areas and that's just a, a recipe for disaster in terms of uh, having these these problems repeat themselves where people are going to rebuild in these communities uh, more lives and livelihoods could, could be lost uh, and no one's really doing anything in terms of the prescribed burns, there's been some action at the state level, uh, but but the the process really needs to be expedited in a way uh, to allow for these things to happen at a, a much rapid and, and expansive pace. So when people push back uh, based on everything that you're telling us and people on the other side of the argument uh, or debate push back uh, at you, uh, what's your response yeah, my response is is one that this is shouldn't be controversial. Uh, if you look at some of the platforms that have written about the need for controlled burns, uh, you know, it, it's Mother Jones, it's ProPublica. You know, they've talked about how this is very important, and it's not just important you know, to to mitigate 
and, pre and prevent the severity of these wild viruses also ha has a lot of environmental benefits in, in terms of allowing for um, more uh, healthy soil um, and, and healthier forests as well and providing more nutrients to the trees and the vegetations that are, are native to those areas. Uh, you know, it's something that the Native American communities have done successfully for a long time and have managed and, and been great stewards of the, the land and the forest that they own. So this is really should be non-controversial and apolitical uh, because there are so many uh, organizations uh, who support it. And, and the more that these uh, anti-do-anything uh, activists tie these projects up in uh, you know, years potentially of litigation and hold them up in the courts, they are preventing action and they're potentially costing people's lives and livelihoods. And we can talk about the impact of climate change uh, on the wildfire season. It's not to necessarily say it's an and or situation, but the, the priority really needs to be doing these controlled burns and, and thinning the forest. There was one, uh, one, uh, someone from the, um, from the uh, National Geologic Survey, who, who essentially said, you know, yes, there's going to be a one to two degree change in temperature, uh, and that could extend the wildfire season, uh, but we really need to be concerned with the ignition sources, and that's all of that dry tinder, the, the, that grass, those shrubs, and those trees, and we need to take care of that. That needs to be the priority. Uh, and instead, we see you know, executive orders about banning gas-powered cars uh, right. in the next 15 years rather than, hey, we're going to address uh, all of this Tinder situation that we have in our state. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that was ridiculous. When I saw that this week, knowing of all of the current problems that there are and the, the difference that could be made in those areas. So I'll just ask you a quick, we have to wrap things up, but um, I think the problem is there's, I don't see any, televised or really uh, serious debate between people like you and then the folks that are in the way of these things that we know. Just common sense tells us we know we can't have excess fuel in the forest. It, you know what? It's funny. Like the whole COVID thing with their fancy commercial with the matches. And if you just move that one match out, it won't ignite the other matches that go along the matchbook. It's no different with the forest as far as I'm concerned. If you're able to clear and, and have controlled burns, you, you know, you're so much more in control of things. Um, so do you see that you guys will be able to have some debates or do you just get shut down and nobody wants to talk in public about it? Boy, I hope so. I, you know, again, given that there have been a lot of folks who are experts in um, – both fire management and ecology and, and apolitical people who are working for the, the Forest Service and, the, uh, and, and even for, you know, organizations like National Geographic who have acknowledged that this is something that has been both natural but important to vegetation in California, that we can be part of these discussions. Because uh, I would understand Californians must be, you know, so frustrated and, and fed up that, that this could be a potential reality and that there's a, a practical uh, solution to reduce the severity of these wildfires. It's not to say that it, it's a silver bullet necessarily, uh, but, but it's been widely acknowledged as a, a very practical solution to mitigate the risk of these fires. And so um, I hope that we can be part of the discussions. I hope that we can work across the aisle with uh, left-leaning organizations and with centrist organizations to just uh, enact policies that, that that help reduce the risk of wildfires uh, as well as other extreme weather events. You know, we know these extreme weather events and natural disasters are, are going to happen. So how can we work with the people in those communities to uh, mitigate that risk and reduce it as well as um, best be prepared so we can save people's lives and livelihoods uh, in a way by building more durable and reliable infrastructure as well. There's a whole host of things we can do uh, that are outcome-based and that should have bipartisan support, uh, and uh, that's what we need to do moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I hope uh, 
I, well, I just wish somebody on the other side would have the, uh, you know, the backbone to have uh, some of these debates. But it's hard because they're, they're just throwing out talking points and scare tactics as opposed to, like you said, a variety of other folks that are coming into the conversation with facts and experiences of, you know, how we can prevent and save lives. And not just I know I talked a lot about the wildfires, but, you know, the whole uh, climate issue and the costs of energy and not being energy independent. We could go on and on. But, folks, I want to uh, make sure you know you can go to the heritagefoundation.org and uh, get uh, Nick Loris, get all of his uh, writings, including some of the ones we talked about today. And you can also sign up for the uh, free daily email called The Daily Signal. Uh, I, I've had it for years and years, and we have a lot of uh, guests like Nick from the organization to come on and explain and give us more detail as to uh, you know what they've written about. Nick, uh, thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a great weekend. Anytime. Thanks for having me, and you too. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. A lot of good information there, folks. Uh, you know, we just have to make sure that we're really – and I, I've told people this – Um, you know, about the earth was going to be gone in 12 years or whatever they're saying, or we're going to have two feet of, uh, of water increase. I'll bet you a thousand dollars. Anybody that wants to email me, I'll take that bet. Anybody. I mean, you know, I, I, I take it all day long, but nobody will actually do that because they won't put their money where their mouth is. And they dance around all these fancy words and all of these stupid predictions and scare tactics so I would really encourage you, again, to go and, and learn about these things to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. Uh, that does it for us. I'll see you next week on the Morning News Express with uh, my uh, friend Bob Miller. So we talk every weekday morning live, 5.50, 6.50, and 7.50. And then uh, we'll see you back here next Saturday. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com news radio 930 wfmd frederick a connoisseur media radio station seven o'clock